Psalm 33. So if you will, would you please stand as we show reverence to God's Word? All right, Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, you are our help and our shield. You are worthy and deserving of all of our praise. So I ask that this morning, as we look into this psalm, you would stir our affections towards you. Let us see you as beautiful, as lovely, as gracious, as kind towards us, and let us respond in worship to you. Lead us into a confident and steady hope in you and you alone. And as we gather this morning, I want to pray specifically for Lee Swindler, for Dustin, for the family. So good to see them with us. We ask that you would bring healing to them, both physically, emotionally, mentally, Let them place their trust and their dependence in you and you alone. Let this body gather around them and and just let this church be seen to be the body of Christ where we bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We rejoice together and we grieve and sorrow together. And so we pray for the Swindler family that they would find comfort from the God of all comfort who knows us and loves us still. We commit this time into your hands, looking to you alone. Make yourself known this morning. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Why don't you guys have a seat? Something that has uh, always fascinated me is the area of marketing. 
It amazes me how companies uh, uh, try so hard to get us to, to buy their stuff. Super Bowl ads anymore uh, run about $5 million for like a 30-second ad. It's amazing the money that the companies invest to, to do this. But what's also amazing to me is, is how much of it actually works, how effective it is. And there was a company that I actually used for many years that I can say was, was probably due solely to their marketing. And specifically, they had good commercials. This company was Geico Insurance, right? Um, I have no idea if Geico is a good insurance provider or not, but they had good commercials, they made me laugh, so I actually was more inclined to, to purchase insurance from them. And uh, they, they had a, a series of ads uh, going recently, they kind of had this common theme, and, and instead of explaining, I thought I'd just show one of these to you. Hopefully you guys can have, have seen this or will be reminded of this. So uh, guys, if you want to show that video right now, we'll look at this. Hey, Peter. Joanne, is that you? It's me. You don't look a day over 70, am I right? If you're Peter Pan, you stay young forever. It's what you do. If you want to save 15% or more on car insurance, you switch to Geico. It's what you do. It's what you do. If you're Peter Pan, you stay young. It's what you do. And they had this whole series of, of just short little ads that played on this theme. There was uh, Dora the Explorer showing up in, in, in Antarctica. If you're an explorer, if you're Dora the Explorer, you explore. It's what you do. They had uh, the, the uh, alligator with his short arms trying to grab the check, one of my favorites. If you have alligator arms, you avoid grabbing the check. So they, they played on all these, these just kind of humorous realities and with the tagline, and it worked because it said, if, if you're this, this is what you do. And then this psalm... Today, we are told what Christians do. It says at the beginning, it says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. It says, Praise befits the upright. Praise is fitting for God's people. If you're a Christian saved by God, you praise Him. It's what you do. Praise is the instinctive response of those who have been made right with God. It may appear as a strange thing in this world to someone who, who maybe stumbles into here and sees us singing these songs together, kind of looking and hearing, hearing from this old book. It could seem like an odd thing. But recognizing the worth and glory of God through vocal proclamation should be a normal rhythm of the Christian life. And this is why our corporate gathering, what we do on Sunday, is so vital and important. It's why we, we, we identify it as one of our foundational pillars of our church. We come together regularly, consistently, to praise and worship God together. It's simply what we do. And even more so, it's what we are. We are worshipers. And God has been on a mission of gathering and reconciling these people to Himself and gathering a, a, a multitude of worshipers to experience Himself and to delight in His glory. And so this psalm encourages us to pursue exuberant praise to God. And we see that in this psalm, suit of joyful praise to God will actually lead to a confident hope in God. That the pursuit of joyful praise to God will lead us to confident hope in God. 
And so we're going to track through the three different movements of this psalm. In verses 1 to 3, we're going to see this invitation to praise. Then in verses 4 through 19, kind of the, the meat of the psalm, we see the justification for praise. And then lastly, in verses 20 to 22, the psalm concludes with a declaration of confidence and praise. So let's see in verses 1 to 3, this invitation to praise. The psalm opens with this invitation, this, this, this call to shout for joy. And who is it that's, that's called and invited into this? It's the righteous. It's the upright. Those whose sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. Those who have Christ's righteousness placed upon us. Because in and of ourselves, we have no true righteousness. All of our righteousness are as filthy rags, but the righteousness of Christ through the gospel has been applied to us, and we stand holy and upright before God because of Christ. And because of that, those who have been forgiven always have reason to shout for joy. I love this line at the end of verse 1 where it says, praise befits the upright. It is fitting. It makes sense. Praise is, is proper adornment for a Christian. It's, it's, it's this image of almost of, of, of clothing, what, what we are dressed in. It, it fits us. We look good in it. It, it. it works. We can pull it off. Because the reality is there's, there's, there's a lot of people who, who wear stuff that they probably shouldn't. You guys ever run into somebody like that? For instance, if you saw like a, a, a young little girl in a, in, a, in a pink tutu and a ballet shoes on, they wouldn't think anything of it. It'd be like, oh, all right, there's a cute little ballerina. But a few years ago, when we first moved to Fort Collins, we, uh, we showed up in Fort Collins, we were exploring things, then my parents came to visit us. And we took them to Old Town. It's the place you go and take people, right? So we went to Old Town. As soon as we got out of the car, we see this guy, and he is wearing a nothing but a, a kid's overnight pull-up, basically a diaper, and a tutu. And my parents are thinking, what is this city that you moved to? <laughs> what we soon found out is that uh, I unknowingly had uh, brought my parents into the middle of Tour de Fat. And so uh, that was their first introduction to, to visiting Fort Collins. But this guy that we saw, we would not say that that, uh, that was fitting for him. That was not a proper adornment for him. But for, for the Christian, it says this praise, this activity of worshiping God is fitting for us. It should be this natural response that, that we are drawn to live in. And there's a couple things that we see about this praise throughout this psalm. First of all, in these first few verses, we see that praise is expressive. There's six verbs that describe what we are called to do. It says to shout or cry. It says give thanks, make melody, sing, play skillfully, and to shout. And these are all physical outward expressions of praise. Now we have to realize that there's no clear blueprint for worship one right way to worship. Praise to God will be carried out in, in different ways and by a variety of means, but it is regularly, outwardly expressive. And this psalm does not say to reflect quietly, although there is a time and a place for quiet reflection, for somber meditation, but regularly throughout Scripture, Praise is most commonly seen through outward expression, physically, with our voices and with our bodies. There's something formative 
about declaring statements verbally. Saying something out loud has a, has a, certain, has a certain power. Singing is a powerful means of communicating both a message and our emotions. And certainly, all aspects of, of our gathering time together should be worshipful opportunities from the time when we come in and we engage in fellowship with one another. We get caught up on life. We pray together through the, the preaching of God's Word, through the, the taking of communion, through, through baby dedications. All the things are, are opportunities for worship. But specifically, the act of corporate worship through singing together is incredibly valuable and a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. So I just want to encourage us as a church, like value the time when we come together and sing. Like, like try to be here on time. We say that our service starts at 10. It actually does start at 10. It's in, in that 10 o'clock, we, we, we engage, we, we get coffee, we, we connect about the week. And then we kind of transition to this time where we gather here. When Joey gets up here to, to, to give the call to worship is what, it, is what we, we, we describe it as. This call to worship when he talks, it's not it's kind of this like, hey, you might want to start thinking about coming on, but, but it's actually this time to invite us to get our minds and attention off of other things and actually to look at God and to specifically prepare our hearts to sing together and stir our affections towards God. So I, I just encourage you guys, get here on time, settle in here when, when, when we want to get things started, help us get things started so we can cultivate an atmosphere and a rhythm within our church of celebrating worship together, specifically in, in the area of song. Ephesians 4.19 says this, it says that, that, that the overflow of a spirit-filled church and a spirit-filled community in life is the singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to God with thanksgiving. And the singing is given as a gift for us to express these emotions and declare truths to ourselves and to each other. We see that praise is musical in this, in this passage. Psalm encourages the use of musical instruments in praise. I'm not sure where our lyre and our harp were this morning. I guess Cole needs to get working on that. But, uh, but, but the point is that music is an effective conduit to carry emotional expression. Most everyone here probably has their, their, their favorite style of music, that they, they love music. Every culture throughout history has had musical elements to it. It's a gift from God for us to use. And just as there are many different uh, styles of music, the, the expression of worship through music will take on a variety of forms depending on the cultural setting and even the musical preferences of the people. But music is given as a means by which we can glorify God. So the psalm says, says give thanks with the lyre, make melody with the harp. It says to sing a new song. I'm not sure specifically what he means by that, but it could be that as, as, as we grow in our understanding of God, we're singing new truths about God. There's, there's always this newness that comes into our worship and our praise. Praise through music is a primary means by which we can pour out our affections. The psalm says to play skillfully on the strings. Well-ordered and well-performed music can help fuel our worship. That's why I'm so thankful to Cole and the others who volunteer and dedicate their time to lead us in musical worship every week. Be thankful for, for all who volunteer to lead us in that, to use their skills and their talents to help us have our, our hearts directed towards seeing God. But maybe you come here and singing with other people isn't really your thing. 
It's kind of awkward. For some of you, maybe vocal singing, public emotional expression is, is kind of difficult. Maybe uh, singing corporately is awkward. Maybe if you're like me, uh, you have very little confidence in your own vocal abilities. So uh, you, you're not really on pitch very often, kind of worried about who's going to hear you. Maybe, maybe that's you. Can, can you rest? I mean, that, that's, that's me. I, I struggle with, with is anybody going to hear me? Sometimes you'll, you'll see me and maybe I'll look like I'm singing loud, but I'm pro- I might be just uh, mouthing it a little bit there too. But uh, just to be honest. But, uh, but maybe it's difficult. Some of us struggle with that. It's just hard to get into, into that. It's, it's, it's weird. But, uh, but let me ask us this. Do, do you let your affections and awe of God guide your worship? Or do the social dynamics of worship unnecessarily restrain your expressions of praise? Let me ask it this way. Is your expression of praise to God at least comparable to the other expressions of joy for other passions in your life? Is it at least comparable? If not, you might need to at least consider why. Why that is. For me, I'm not an overly passionate and expressive guy. I can be fairly reserved. But I have found that, that there's, there's certain times and situations in which I get pretty expressive. I get pretty passionate. For instance, maybe watching the Broncos play a game. I get, I get excited. I get frustrated. All these, these emotions come out. They're, 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 they're displayed in that. And I've at least had to, had to consider why, why it is that I, I can be expressive and, and, and outward in, in some of those situations. And yet sometimes in worship can be fairly reserved. And I at least need to ask that question why that is. But if the truths that we are singing about are truly stirring our heart and our affections towards God, should that not be expressed in some kind of outward physical response, just like so many other aspects of our lives? And there are numerous appropriate expressions of praise. I'm not going to stand here and tell you, you should do this, or you should raise your hands this way, or you should do that. Like Each of us has to wrestle with that, but at the same time, we see throughout Scripture that praise is expressive, and if we are captivated by this God, if we are moved by this God emotionally, inwardly, that should in some way come out in our physical expressions of praise and worship. And we as a church can, can embrace those things in the different ways that they look throughout our body. But when it comes to praising God, to worshiping God, I think it's also true that there's many times where we find it difficult to, to worship because we just don't really feel like it. We don't really feel close to God. We don't really feel just in awe of God when we come in here. It's been a tough week, a difficult season. You come in here and it's just kind of, kind of dry. Like I'm not, I don't know if I really want to sing today. And we, and we can come in with, with that attitude. And, and I think this psalm encourages us to enter into the hard work of worship. In many ways, worship is a discipline for us. It's something we have, to, we have to strive to engage in even when we don't feel like it. And there's many things in life that, that, we, that are good for us to pursue even when we don't necessarily feel like it. My wife, Jessica, uh, over the past number of years has, has really gotten into running. She loves running. I have no idea why. <laughs> the only running I like to do is like running out to get tacos or something. But <laughs> she loves running. And, uh, and, and she started off, you know, just, just doing a little bit and uh, kind of built up more and more and over the years she, to the point now where she just, she, she is disappointed if she misses a run, if she doesn't get out to run. 
She, she loves it anymore. She can just, her alarm goes off. She just pops right out of bed and gets out there, starts running. Even in like the cold of winter, she comes back and her eyelashes are frozen. I'm like, what are you doing? But she, she loves it. And, but, it, but it hasn't always been like that. And early on, there was, there was a lot of days, and even still, there's, there's those days where she wakes up and it's a little easier to maybe just stay in bed and, uh, and, and, and sleep. But every time she, she gets up and she, she runs, when she comes back, I've, I've never once heard her come back and say, man, I'm so disappointed that I went for a run today. I felt so bad. No, every time she comes back, she's, she's like, I'm so thankful I, I, I did it. I, I went for that run. I feel good. She gets that runner's high, and she, 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 she just loves it. it. It fuels her. And there's many things in life that are like that, and I think worship is one of them, where sometimes worship is born out of kind of a season of just joy and awe of seeing God do things, and we're just drawn to worship Him. And then other times, it's actually through pursuing worship in difficult seasons that we can be drawn to find a renewed rejoicing We can choose to declare God's goodness, and in the declaring of God's goodness over time together, God actually uses that to stir our hearts and direct our hearts back to Him. And then that redirecting of our hearts then turns back on itself and actually then fuels worship out of a place of joy and rejoicing. And worship can be a difficult discipline at times. But that's why Psalms are so beautiful is because they, they call to us in those places. Some Psalms, like Psalm 34, just starts from a place of just of, 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 of awe of God, of just wanting to celebrate God's goodness. But then you go to a Psalm like, say, 73, where, where you see the psalmist just struggling in life and difficulty and, and doubt. And then it says that he goes into the, into the house of God and he considers and he thinks and dwells on God and who he is and his heart has changed, has shifted and transformed. And the Psalm ends with like this, this declaration of, of praise. So even in the Psalms, we see that struggle, and we find ourselves in those different places. Worship is a means where sometimes we have to worship through difficulty. We have to worship through spiritual dryness. Sometimes it's responsive, and at other times, the act of praise can actually direct our hearts towards God. So this Psalm invites us all into a regular rhythm of praise. And remember, this isn't just corporate gatherings. But this is also in our private lives as well. We would do well to fill our lives and our homes with good music that will direct our hearts and our minds towards our God. So our praise should be both natural and expressive. It's what we do. The psalm moves on in verses 4 through 19 to give this justification for praise. It gives the grounds for this praise that is being solicited. And what are the reasons for praising God that we have? But before we can dig into the details here, I just want to ask this question. I said, why does God demand praise from us? Why should we praise this being? Why should we worship Him? Furthermore, how should we think about someone who wants to be worshipped? Someone who is always desiring glory? How should we think about that type of person? Because some would, would see that in Scripture and say, man, God kind of seems like a megalomaniac. He's kind of stuck on himself. Isn't this God a bit narcissistic? Always just wanting us to praise him and, and, and stroke him in a certain way. How, should, how, how do we wrestle with that? But we need to consider what makes someone or something worthy to be worshipped. What kind of things merit or deserve recognition and adoration? Because when a person 
points to themselves and they say, look at me, look what I can do, look at how awesome I am, behold my glory, marvel at me, how wonderful I am. How, how do we respond to a person like that? We're oftentimes kind of repulsed, we're kind of put off from that many times. We may be able to appreciate and even admire maybe a, a spectacular feat, an achievement, be awed by some skill, but we rarely turn that into just this full-orbed worship of a person. And when they actually then want to be worshipped, we we're turned off by that, by the athlete that pumps his chest, says, look at me, look how great I am. And our response is oftentimes, hey, you're not that great. Regardless of what, what you can do, you're, you're still just one of us. You're still just a man. And we're turned off by that. But, but God is not just a man. He is transcendent, meaning he is, he is beyond us. We oftentimes kind of can, can tend to bring God down to our level at times and think he should just be just like us. Yes, he took on humanity, understands us, but at the same time, God is, is still this transcendent, eternal being far beyond us. So we can't just attribute to him the same thoughts of self-centered pride that we would to a gloating, boastful athlete. But see, God's glory is not bestowed upon him by another. He is intrinsically glorious in himself, thus the only being who is fully deserving of worship. But it's one thing for God to be worthy or deserving of worship, and it's, it's another thing for Him to demand worship, right? But throughout Scripture, we see that it's a good and right thing for God to desire and even demand worship, praise, and glory. And what do we do with that? I, I believe that the call to praise is actually a loving act which God calls us to experience fullness of joy. See, we have to understand that God does not need our praise. God is not desiring our worship to fulfill some longing in Himself. He's not using us to make Himself feel better about Himself, to establish His own identity. And that's usually what most people are doing when they seek praise and adoration from others. But with God, He's not like that. He doesn't need our praise. He's not trying to get something from us that He doesn't have. But I think it's actually a loving act of God for Him to desire our praise. John Piper has helpfully asked this question. He said, what if admiration is the highest pleasure and God is the most admirable being? And if the answer is yes, and I think it is, then God is inviting all of us to experience joy through admiring Him and expressing that admiration through praise. C.S. Lewis has helpfully connected both our delight and our praise together when he wrote these words. Stay with me as I, as I read from C.S. Lewis. He says this, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Do you guys get that? I'm going to read that line again. It says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise not merely expresses, but it actually completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. He goes on to say, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. 
It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley or unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. So if Lewis is right, then God's invitation for us to worship Him, His call and longing for us to worship Him is actually the same as our longing for joy and pleasure. So God is not a megalomaniac But his commitment to his glory and praise is actually a magnanimous act of love. John Piper, along these same lines, has said this, If God demeaned his supreme worth in the name of humility, we would be the losers. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue. For there is only one supremely beautiful being in the universe— There is only one all-satisfying person in the universe. If God hides that or denies that, he might seem humble, but he would be hiding from us the very thing that would make us completely happy forever. So what this means for us is that God's desire for our praise is a desire for our joy. It also means that God is not after our begrudging worship, our mere lip service to Him. He's not a cruel monarch who's just forcing His subjects to to laud Him and, and praise Him out of fear of punishment or something like that, but He's inviting us to experience the joy that He has in Himself. So worship cannot be mere obligation. If you sing songs to God because that's just what you're supposed to do as a Christian, then we have missed it. Praise is meant to be the full consummation of finding joy and satisfaction in God. So as we together pursue a delight in God through worshiping Him, what are those things that we can delight in? And this psalm lays them out for us. It gives this justification for praise. It lays out the things that we should delight in God for. And we'll run through them quickly. The first thing in, in verses 4 and 5 is God's character. The character of God. It says He is righteous. His word is upright. He is truthful in all that He does. It says that He is faithful. He is true to His promises. When He promises something, He's going to come through on it says that he loves righteousness and justice, that which is fair and equitable. He is a just God, and he's on a mission to make all wrongs right, and he will execute final justice. And his justice is, is why he actually has to punish sin. It's because he is a just God. But in the gospel, we see that his, his mercy allows him to find a way for him to both be just and punish sin while at the same time giving forgiveness to sinners like us. And that's the beauty of the gospel. But the gospel hinges on his, on his justice. 
He's righteous, he's faithful, he's just, and he's committed. There's this, this, this word throughout Scripture that, that describes God's steadfast love. It means he is committed to us for the long haul. He's not going anywhere. And as you just look at that list, righteous, faithful, just, committed, those characteristics, isn't, isn't, aren't those the exact list that you would come up with for, say, a, a spouse, a friend, almost any human relationship? That, that's what you would want in that relationship. And God says, this is what I am for you. And you can enter into a relationship with me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be this in that relationship. So no matter, no matter what kind of relational messes you've gone through in your family, marriage, workplace, whatever, we can turn and praise God that He, amidst all the failing relationships that we can experience, is the one who enters into a perfect relationship with us, not because we're perfect, but because He is, and He's committed to us and committed to righteousness and faithfulness. And when we are unfaithful, He steps in and forgives us and covers us with His faithfulness and His righteousness. And that is worth praising God for. He moves on in the psalm to describe his creative power in verses 6 to 9. He says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by his breath all their hosts, or this whole realm of, of celestial bodies, were made by God's word. In just a few weeks, we're going to embark on a study through the book of Genesis. And right from the get-go, we're going to look at God's creative act. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But in this, in this passage, we're called to stop and consider the one who made all things, and specifically the power with which he can create. It's by his word, by his breath. The psalmist reveals this awe-inspiring power that's declared and displayed through creation. He says it, and it happens. He speaks and the universe came into existence. He, he spoke and the stars were put in their place. Then he gives this, this imagery of, of the waters. It says that he gathers the waters as a heap. He puts the deep, uh, deeps of the oceans into storehouses. Describes God's shaping control over this world and specifically the oceans. He has set their boundaries and placed them in their proper place. A little over a week ago, my family was able to take a vacation up with uh, my wife's family up to Lake Superior. And uh, I'd never really been to Lake Superior before, but uh, we got there and I knew it was this big lake. But then you get there and you just realize how big it is. If you want to feel small, go to one of those lakes or one of these bodies of water and then look at a map. Like I, like, like I just had to look at, at Google Maps just to kind of see where we were on the, on the, on the coast and all. We were on this little island it was just this tiny thing, but, but as I looked out, like, you couldn't even see across it. So it's just like, man, it's like the ocean, but then you look at it, and, then, and you see how big the lake is. Then, then you actually compare the lake to the oceans, and it's just a, a speck, a drop in the bucket. And it just shows how, how massive the bodies of water are that cover this, this world. What's that song? It's a small world after all. That's, that's ridiculous. It's actually a really big world. Um, there's, there's, there's just massive bodies of water. And if you think about the, the waters of the world, the oceans, it's like the most untamable thing. Like we can, we can, we can build bridges that kind of get us over parts of the ocean. We can build planes to fly us over the ocean, but we can't control the ocean. We can't, we can't stop waves from coming in. When a hurricane comes, we can board up our houses and kind of wait for it to do its thing. We can't stop it. You ever try to stop a wave? Like you just have, you have no power over the waters. 
But the image here is that, that God just comes along and He just He scoops up the seas in, a, in His cup. All the oceans, He just can, can stick in His jug and do what He wants with it. He's, 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 he's put them in their places. He controls them. This is, this is God's creative power. And it's, it's huge. And we need to reflect on and, and, and just stand in awe of God's creative power. And He says what our response should be. What should it be? It says we should be fearful. We should stand in awe. There should be a healthy fear of God. He moves on to describe God's sovereign dominion in verses 10 to 12. It says that he brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of peoples. And then in parallel lines, the counsel and the plans of men are contrasted with the counsel and the plans of God basically says nations can talk, world leaders can negotiate, they can organize and they can govern the world and think that they have all the control and all the power, but it's God that actually has ultimate control. And I don't know about you, but that verse just gives me hope and stability. When you think of Donald Trump meeting with guys like Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, right? like no matter what's going on in those meetings and what they're talking about, regardless of that, of these, these men and these leaders in the world who, have, who seemingly just have all this power. God is the one who stands behind it all. And it's God who, whose counsel will actually stand. It says that he frustrates the plans of people. Do you trust God when he uninterrupts your plans? When you got your life figured out, and this is the job you're going to work forever, this career path, and, and there's a hiccup in that. When he gives you another, another kid that was unexpected out of nowhere. How do you respond to that? When, when, when friendships are struggling, when, when things are, are happening, do you, do you trust God in the way that he kind of takes us down a path that we wouldn't have planned, that we wouldn't have expected? I think we could all resonate with that. Probably none of us say our life is exactly the way that we planned it out. But do we trust God in the, in the path and the plans that he has set for us? Then it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen. And I just want to say specifically, this is, this is directed towards and speaking of the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God in the Old Testament. And I think it's, it's true that the, the presence and blessing of this nation may be seen and influenced by the presence of Christians throughout its history, through its founding, but this is not God's country. God did not set his affections on the USA but he has set his affections on his people, on the church, on the true Israel, his remnant, his people. And it says, blessed are those whose God is the Lord. And the last characteristic we see in verses 13 to 19 is this broad vision of our God. This imagery that's, that reveals God's broad viewpoint from God's seat, he can see everything. He sees all people. He knows all their actions. He knows every motive of their hearts. He is the one who has fashioned and formed them. But don't we often think that we know better than God? We know how this situation should work out. We know how this person should respond. We know what should take place here. We, we, have, it, we have it figured out. But this is saying, that, like, recognize God has the best seat in the house. He sees everything. When you think of uh, football teams, oftentimes when they, when they coach, 
they'll have coaches that'll be there on the sideline, but, but many times they'll have coaches that are actually up in, in, in a booth, up high in the stadium. The reason they do that is so they can get a different perspective, so they can get a broader perspective on what's taking place. It'd be foolish for the coach on the sideline to be, you know, struggling with how the defense is lined up and wanting to make all these moves without actually consulting with the guy who has a better view, who has a, has a, a view on, on what's taking place in the game, can see what the defense is doing in, in a specific vantage point. And he's saying that God sits there and he sees everything. He does, we only see this little tiny blip. We only see this little, these few circumstances, but God sees it all. And he understands how, 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 how this is going to lead to, to this in your life. He's gonna, he, he understands how, how this, this difficulty and this, this challenge is actually going to bring about good. And we can, we can question and think this, this, this can't be, but God from his seat, from his perspective, sees it all. And he knows how to act in care towards us. The psalmist then uses three images to depict common objects of human dependence. What do we depend on? He gives this, this king who depends on his army, a warrior who might rely on his physical strength, and then says that a, a war horse is, a, is a, a strong advantage in battle. But all of these are described as false hope. So what are the things that we look to for rescue, that we try to depend on? What are our armies? Where's our strength? What are our war horses? For many, maybe it is actually the security of our nation, our military might. We are still the world's strongest and largest superpower. You know, maybe that allows you to sleep well at night, gives you, gives you comfort. For others, it may be your impeccable physical health. Maybe you're obsessed with finding the perfect diet, just the right things that will fix all ailments that will bring you a long and healthy life. Maybe you work out religiously to stay in great shape and you're, you're just obsessed with, with, with how you look. Maybe your army is your investment portfolio. Maybe your war horse that's going to rescue you is finding a spouse or keeping that friendship intact. What is the war horse that you look to for rescue, for salvation in your life? Yes, a strong military can be a good thing. Eating healthy and taking care of our bodies is a valuable and good stewardship of what God has given. But if we ultimately hope in those things for joy, stability, and rest, then we are standing on a foundation. How quickly can a nation be overturned you can eat Whole30, you can put your body into ketosis, whatever that is. You can eat all carbs, no carbs, all meat, no meat. You can find the holy grail of diets, but your life and your health is ultimately in God's control. And you may still get cancer, you may still get sick, difficult things may happen in your life. Our country may fall apart may be attacked by terrorists. But where do we look for actual salvation, for actual hope? And the psalm gives us this. It says, The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. He will deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. He is the one who has fashioned us and our lives. 
Our world is in his sovereign hands, and nothing escapes his sight. He sees all, he knows all, he understands it intimately, and he knows how to care for us. And he has provided the deliverance that our souls ultimately need. And he overcame death through the sacrifice of Christ so that these words will always ring true. So that we are not abandoned to death ultimately, but our soul will be saved because of what Christ has done for us. If we put our hope and our trust in what he has done. And I love how this psalm ends in verses 20 to 22. Ends with this declaration of confident praise. We see this renewed confidence as, as, the, as the psalm starts with just this call to praise, as we reflect on, as we see God, as we think about these aspects of God, as we worship Him for these things, it actually culminates in this result. It kind of lands us at this point of, of just a settled, steady confidence in God. And hopefully that, that, that end result actually then fuels us to greater pursuit of praise. We see that confidence is expressed in how we wait. As we worship God, we learn to wait because He is our help and He is our shield. And just note, it doesn't say that He is our help and He's our cruise ship. Because the reality is that sometimes you actually just need a shield. Like difficulty is going to come, it's going to come at you. You're going to need protection from it. That's the reality of a broken world. And God says He is our shield in those times. He's not just about being our cruise ship. And maybe that's you right now. Maybe you're just waiting for God to show up, to show Himself faithful in a difficult time. This psalm is calling for you to worship God through that difficulty, to praise Him through the storms of life. And in that reflection and trust in God's character, you can actually find patience and the ability to wait for Him. Confidence is seen in our attitude of gladness. We can have this positive outlook no matter what the circumstances are because we trust in the name of God. And confidence is kind of the opposite of anxiety. We live in an anxious world, a stressful environment oftentimes, but when we are free of anxiety and fear because we are confident in God, it frees us to relax, to just have an attitude and an aura of, of gladness. Christians should be those who can find gladness amidst the ups and downs and the challenges of life. doesn't mean that sorrow is a true reality. But ultimately, there can be gladness found when our trust is in the name of the Lord. And lastly, this confidence is rooted in God's faithful love, establishes our hope. We have confidence because God is committed to us. It doesn't depend on your commitment to God, but His commitment to you. And God's steadfast, faithful love was most definitively declared and displayed on the cross. And so if you question whether God is committed to you, look to the cross. When you begin to lose hope, we look to the cross. If you doubt God's ability to bring you through, we look to the cross. And we can have confident praise in this God. So let's receive this invitation to praise. Let's regularly commit together and individually to declaring the worth and beauty of God throughout our lives. As we recognize, as we reflect on, and as we remember God's character 
His power, His sovereignty, and His wise vantage point, we can be led to a stronger and stronger confident hope that gives us a stability throughout all the seas of life. Let's pray together and look to this God. God, You are good to us. You are powerful. You are above all things. You see everything. Nothing escapes Your gaze. I pray that You would give us the ability to commit to trusting in You. Help us to be a people who praise You constantly, regularly throughout our lives. And as we praise You, let that praise of You and Your character lead us to a confident and steadfast hope in You. It's in the glorious name of Jesus, our Savior, by which these promises are secured that we pray. Amen.